Wisdom is the reward you get for a lifetime of listening when you'd rather have talked. Mark Twain. And this Burritos Breaks and Flies podcast, things get pretty religious as we bring you the Stillwater Gospel according to Phil. Phil Rowley is a Stillwater fly fishing legend and sensation, and we are honored and elated to have him on board as a guest. We talk all things Stillwater, everything from balance leeches, coronamids, indicator setups, and a plethora of other items that will definitely help all of us become better Stillwater anglers. Phil also chats with us about some of his Nevada fly fishing adventures, and that includes waters like Crittenden and Pyramid, and we also shed some light on some other local still waters as well. But one of the most important topics we cover is that of Phil's favorite burrito, and we ever cover down on a bit of Burrito 101 with Phil. And thank you a ton to our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. Loop Tackle, hey, this is how we land our fish. Adams Built Fishing, they are the keeper of our flies, and they net our trophies. And there's Oxner Insurance. Well, Jeremy is the guy you want to talk to, especially if you're considering some of Nevada's far and away still waters. Probably want to think about protecting those assets when you are abroad and at home. You can find all of our sponsor links on our homepage on bearfishalliance.com. Hey, and now we hope you enjoy the Stillwater Gospel according to Phil. All right, welcome to Burritos, Breaks, and Flies. Today we have an awesome, spectacular guest with us. We're elated to have him, super excited. Stillwater phenomenon, Mr. Phil Rowling. Thank you for joining us, Phil. Good to be here, guys. Awesome. And we have a special guest host today. Taylor Brun. Hey, I, I, you know, it's been a little bit, but I'm glad to be back. And I'm really excited to be here with Phil today. For yes, sure. Is. Yes, we have the prodigy with us, with Mr. Phil Rowley. It's going to be a great episode. So let's, let's start this off. I need to ask, who is Phil Rowley? Oh, well, that's a question I haven't thought about. Um, I guess in the fly fishing community, I'm that Stillwater, one of the one of the few Stillwater guys. Yeah. <laughs> fly fishers is probably a better term. Yeah. Um, although I fly fish for everything that swims and eats if I can, but uh spend the majority of my time uh chasing uh fish and still waters primarily trout. Primarily where where what would you consider your home waters? Uh Currently around the town of Edmonton, Alberta, where I am. Um, so we have a, a good half a dozen, dozen trout lakes that are um, stocked and, and um, in, in ideal conditions, produce some really large fish and some exciting fly fishing. But my travels take me all over North America and even down into South America now. So I have lots of regional favorites, we'll call them. <laughs> oh, wow. Wow. And I, and I think we'll touch on some of that. I know you had some, uh, you took a trip to nevada to northern nevada and we'll we'll touch on that but we're we're excited to hear about that and uh, i know we followed some of your adventures anything that you've put out on on youtube i think we've seen you on new fly fisher and and yep. stuff like that so you're you're around and, and your expertise is is pretty valuable for those that are trying to learn stillwater um those may even be very experienced on stillwater there's always a lot to learn and there is there's a serious challenge behind that mm -hmm. and i think i think that's one of the the 
it, an attractive item about Stillwater and also something that kind of scares people away is because I don't think people realize how complex one can make a Stillwater. Yeah, you know? it can be the worst of times and the best of times all rolled into one. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a good way to put it right there for sure, <laughs> especially around here. Right. <laughs> so what, what attracts you to Stillwater versus, let's say, you know, traditional river fly fishing? What is it about it that that really that gets you um a, a number of things um you know and actually ironically i started learning to fly fish on rivers but in british columbia where i lived for 35 years um by far the 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 most easily accessible and and most productive fishing was in the interior of the province in the kamloops area that's world famous for its stillwater trout fishing and just sort of fell in love with it but there's a number of reasons um you know generally it's less crowded um, there's lots more pressure, I think, on rivers and streams. Um, and even when a lake is crowded, you can usually find a place that you can sit and play and have some fun. Um, I always joke our fish are bigger, <laughs> generally, in a productive lake. Um, yeah. We tend to measure them in pounds as opposed to inches. Right. Um, our bugs are bigger. Um, we don't usually have to deal with things like trichos and, and pseudos and those kind of microscopic things. Uh, I had a really good friend of mine former guide uh, before he passed away was uh, he used to say if it's if they're eating size 16 they're not getting it from me so you know our midges our chronomids as we call them um you know a, a 12 or a 14 is standard maybe a 16 the odd 18 and we even fish fish them as big as 8 2xl so our bugs are bigger uh -huh. um you know, generally, I said less crowding, a more relaxed pace. You know, we generally have watercraft to carry us around in. Uh, we don't have to, whenever I fish a river, I always seem to, some reason, go downstream all day. And at the end of the day, when I'm bagged, I face that five-mile hike up river against the current. Um, so those kind of things. Um, yeah, and uh, not, probably those are the, the best reasons I could think of off the top of my head. Yeah. That's awesome. I think I think with that, I know we've we've had some you know local experiences. Like we have a classic, well, I don't call it classic, but we have a a, a trophy still water here with Pyramid Lake, hmm. um, and it's it's unique in its own way. Where it's comforting to hear you talk about larger size midges because uh, you'll find the same kind of patterns on that lake where you'll hmm. find folks using the size sixteen, and you're kind of yeah. like, well, what the, what the heck? where I've been in the same boat as you, where we'll, we'll tie up a size eight and sometimes in a freak situation, tie up a size six mm -hmm. Mitch, you know, people are like, what the, what the heck is that? Yeah. But it, it works like yep. no question about it. Fish don't care. They don't look at it and go, ah, you know what? That size six, I don't think I'm going to do it. Hey, but that guy's got a 12. That's where I'm going. <laughs> you yeah, know? No, sometimes, you know, know, sometimes they will get selective and that's just part of being fish, but you know, those fish in Pyramid and other lakes famous for their big fish don't get big by being picky, <laughs> right? That's so, a true story. <laughs> you know, they got a, they got a, a metabolism they got to keep fueled, and, and the best way to do that is, is for them to eat everything they come across. Right. And I, I, think, I think this kind of leads us to one of the first things we really wanted to talk about with you is a popular pattern. Um, it's a popular pattern on, on Pyramid. And I really haven't seen it being a popular pattern on any other of the still waters out here, which is kind of a shame. Uh, it's the balanced leech. Mm -hmm. um, yep. And, you know, that first became a buzzword here really not that long ago. It sounded so 
it, it sounded so exotic, you know, so complicated. And, and then you kind of dig into it. And uh, the balanced leech, I know for me, has been a really successful, highly productive pattern uh, on, on Pyramid Lake um in other and in, in other venues as well but consistently just yep. it, even when you're like i don't know i don't know about this you put it out there and it's a day saver yeah. um but i know i know uh taylor had a question about the balance leech aside like we'll, we'll kind of dig into the specifics of it but taylor's kind of gone both ways on it and why don't you go ahead and ask yeah me. i mean like phil so like you know with the balance and right they're tied on jake hooks of course you know and all that have you noticed like like what really draws you to that balance versus just tying it on a regular old jig hook you know like like have you noticed there's like a significant change in catch rate or like just how you fish it in general yeah um it's um you know ironically is i i didn't invent the fly um A publication and I do the fly tying column in there and so I was introduced you know the balance always looking for for content for that column and the balance leech and the originator um, Jerry McBride and uh, Jerry's based in Spokane Washington so he intrigued me with his concept he originally started you know he sort of figured out that you hang something a regular beadhead pattern below an indicator and it just hangs vertically and with the exception of emerging coronamid pupa um, for the most part nothing else swims vertically in the water so it matches the natural profile of just about everything. So he actually started doing it with um, um, nymph patterns and was tying them on down eye hooks. I sort of got into it and just fell in love with the concept. And then my contribution was the jig hook because when you're tying it on a standard down eye hook, the risk is you um, get so focused on tying, you kind of forget you've got to tie this fly on and you end up obscuring the hook eye and i always joke those are the ones you give away to your friends right perfectly balanced can't <laughs> um but um, no it's revolutionized when when i first started experimenting with it i was with uh, brian chan another stillwater uh, fanatic like myself and good friend and uh, quite well known in the stillwater world and uh, we were doing some experimentation before school we were doing up in british columbia and um, we were taking turns hanging regular patterns tied identical one balanced one unbalanced literally you know five feet apart they're hanging and that balance fly outfish the regular one ten to one and that was sort of the turning point for me to go i think this is on to something because the fish chose right and it's such a versatile pattern as far as not only leeches we tie balanced dragonfly nymphs balanced minnows balanced everything and the fly is an excellent fly in its own right as a cast and retrieve pattern because it's essentially a little jig which is arguably the best lure ever made for fish. So I use it cast and retrieve, uh, whether I'm anchored, whether I'm drifting, fishing lock style, the English techniques. Um, fishing, I fish for walleye now. It's you know getting kind of warm for trout in my local water. So I go chase walleye just because you're not supposed to catch those on the fly. So I love doing things I'm not supposed <laughs> to. And uh, we just tie larger balanced minnows. And, uh, you know, the common method is a spinning rod with a jig and a minnow on it. And I'm basically fishing a full sinking line, letting that hang vertically straight down. So it suspends about a foot or so off the bottom and just waiting for the uh, to get hit. 
right? And it, it works really, really well. So it's a very versatile pattern. That's a tying style, I'd say, more than anything. That The leech mm -hmm. is obviously the most common thing you would use for it, but if you think about it, you could tie anything in a balance fly. And now with the explosion of the European nymphing and those small jig hooks, um, we couldn't get those. You know, when I first started tying this fly uh, 10 plus years ago, all we had was light wire uh, panfish jig hooks um, was, that we could find. And uh, they, you know, against the larger trout, they, they tended to straighten out. So now we've got these really stout, strong hooks. And I've taken those down to Argentina where the average size is, is 15 pound rainbows kind of thing. Um, similar to what pyramid offers with the cuts is, um, you know, you got to have a hook that's going to hold up. Yeah. Oh yeah, for that, sure. Yeah, no, that, that definitely answers like my question. And it's, it's funny. You, you just talked about the, uh, the walleye on the sinking line with a balance fly. Yeah. You know, like just going straight down from your boat because I was recently playing around, uh, up at a local, you know, probably two hours from Reno, Twin Twin Lakes, you know, pretty well-known lake around here. And I mean, I didn't get a bite, you know, yeah. it, it was hot and I knew the trout were deep and I was like, man, I just, you know, I'm, I'm fishing a sinking line. And, you know, when you said that, I was like, I should have done it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're not just an indicator fly, right? Yeah, no. That's the most and, common presentation tactic, Yeah, uh, but um, they are not just an indicator fly. No, and I've, I've surprised myself. I've been in situations where uh, indicator indicator fishing with the balance leech and the conditions go flat or they go glassy. You don't have enough uh, motion, you know, to, to bring that thing to life. Um, and, you know, especially like on pyramid when it goes glassy, the, the fish get a little bit spookier because, well, they can see better, you know. So uh, I, I had one circumstance where I'm just like, I really don't feel like re-rigging or anything. So I just ripped the indicator off and I just, it was kind of like a Hail Mary. It was yeah. one of those days where it's just like nothing was coming together. I'm like, what's going on? And I start stripping that at least just like I would a streamer. And, you know, once you know it, you know, boom, yep. there it is. You know, I'm like, oh, well, holy smokes. Just because you you, you kind of get stuck on the impression, oh, that's an indicator fly. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, oh, it's got to hang under this and it's got to do its thing. Whereas I started tying from that point forward, I started tying a lot of my streamers either in a leech, you know, or jig style pattern to yep. where I know I can get it at least on the streamer side. I can get a similar characteristic where I'm simulating an injured bait fish, you know, dragging its nose across, at least for the cutties, dragging its nose through the sand with tail up, you know, and just yep. kind of adopting, you know, what the balance leech was done. So it, 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 it it's an awesome pattern. And I, I have to say, Probably the, one of my my favorite my favorite balance leech pattern would be the bruise balance leech. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. When yeah, in doubt, I, when in doubt, go bruised. Yeah. Oh, it's it's nuts, and it actually this year for me and and a friend of mine, uh, if he's listening, it, it's Eric Olson, aka Pledge. He'll appreciate that we call him Pledge. Um, his second time out there, um, I hooked him up with. I had a a bruised balance leech on my end and I had one on his and I get my personal best. It came out just under 33 inches, mm. um, which I didn't weigh it, didn't have the scale, but didn't matter. It was just big, Got big a, fat. We used to use the old analogy, steelhead fishing. If you take 20 off its length, it'll give you its approximate weight, right? So it's 13, 14 pounds probably, I'm uh, guessing. Yeah, right. right around there. And then he got one that was a little shorter, but it looked like it ate the one that I caught previously. It was just like it was eating yeah. footballs, just yeah. just this chunky thing. But 
um, it was it was a day saver um, and it was a trophy catcher, you know, but I can't tell you the quantity of fish. I would say my catch rate on indicators versus midges, at least at that water, I'm probably at 85, almost 90 percent on the leech. Yeah. You know, even on these days, where, oh, no, it's midge day. No, they're not taking anything but midges. You throw that out there and it's like, oh, my indicator went down. So tell me what, what happened. Well, you'll there. see you'll <laughs> see a couple things there. Often after a heavy feeding of midges, uh-huh. they'll, you'll see a lot of times they'll start feeding on leeches almost, to, I don't know, as a dessert or a st- make them all stick down there. And I just don't think they can turn one down. It's just... And they're samplers too, right? They see something in the water, they swim up, they don't have hands, so they put their mouth on it. And that's all, as far as we're concerned, bobbers down. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Bobbers down. Yeah, we yeah. can argue later over a drink or something of why it went down, but the end, the, the key thing was it went down. <laughs> and it that proves down. coloration you mentioned. It's, and I guess for your viewers, it's the body, it, the tail's just black marabou with a, a couple of strands of the, uh, um ice blue pearls number 6904 flashaboo just a subtle couple and then the arizona semi seal in black blue that's exact color and gold bead um orange beads hot orange beads work well chartreuse beads i usually mix it between those three uh-huh. and it works really good yeah trout rainbow trout in particular there's something about fluorescent orange they seem to like and i'm only too happy to feed them <laughs> It is a true story about fluorescent orange. It's a weird thing. I, I mean, yeah, we've 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 played around with it, and you know, with pyramid, right? It, there's like this switch where it's like natural patterns into you know, you do. You're one of the few guys I I've seen in their videos where you talk a lot about those European blobs, you know, and all this, yeah, all this stuff, you know, and and pyramid lake, right? You had the, the beetle kind of come about mm-hmm. with that chartreuse beetle. That's like yep. a classic pattern um but you know other than pyramid you're like one of the only guys i hear just like you know blobs bright colors and and pyramids really that lake where you see that switch and it just nobody knows when it happens it's approximately like what february march ish Mm -hmm. you know it depends on the water temperature and everything else when that spawn mode kind of starts in their head you know and you just watch watch it switch you know yeah we'd use them like we use those attractor flies english techniques you know, fish don't always take our flies out of out of feeding response, right? Aggression, territoriality, curiosity. Um, so there's times when they they're not feeding and we're fishing, so we need to coax them to biting. So we're you know we're kind of if you look at the, you know the bass fishermen call it a reaction bite. That's sort of what we're trying with those flies. You know we they're loud, they're gaudy. Um, we fish them at pace most of the time, and just try to something. You know they just I'm sure we've all experienced when you're you're fishing damselflies. You're going to move, and you reel that fly in at 100 miles an hour just to get it in and move, and you get plowed. And <laughs> damsel nymphs do not swim that fast, but you just no. drag something so fast by it. It's like a, you know, probably all have memories as a kid. You ride by that mean old dog. As soon as you rode by on a bike, it was Cujo. It was coming for you. Um, the same thing. You just Something just snapped in its head, and it, it went after you. But we also use them. Those gaudy flies when they get on zooplankton, little microscopic, um, and typically they're oranges, pinky reds, um, uh-huh. those kind of colorations. So we're playing the color card, and we actually take blobs, which is a just that um, um, fritz on a hook. Um, we put bead heads on them, and we hang them and fish them like leeches and chironomids under indicators. 
in the summer months uh, or late fall when the fish have sort of slid out to deep water and targeting zooplankton and playing and it's you guys if you haven't tried it you should it's 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 pretty darn effective <laughs> like way too effective sometimes. Uh, that's that's interesting because yeah. uh I, I think that's something that we overlook here uh, and not just here between taylor and i but just in general the uh the feeding on the zooplankton mm -hmm. that's it's, it's interesting important. and especially in the you know as as water temperatures warm the shallows are going to hold less oxygen the fish are going to spend less and less time in there so they slide out into the deeper water 15 20 feet down to get more oxygenated water and zooplankton feed on phytoplankton we're going in the weeds here a bit um <laughs> and <right>. phytoplankton <laughs> yeah phy i love it when i talk dirty right um, <laughs> phytoplankton, um is light sensitive so they spend a lot of the daylight hours down deep and come up at night um to do their thing and of course the predators follow them right so um for me it's usually it's a great indication too if you use a throat pump on a fish and it's got zooplankton you might have caught it 10 feet of water adjacent to the deep water you know a drop off and it's got zooplankton that's telling you that fish is probably spending more of its time in the deep water you may want to slide out there and give hang a blob or something or strip a booby or a fab or a what's it um all these different uh, english attractor style patterns and and uh, and give it a whirl Oh, that's fascinating because I know we've been we've been in still water situations where nothing's happening. Where you may see you may see some occasional activity, um, and then you try to reach out to them with everything that you got, yeah. and and maybe the water is a little bit warmer or whatnot, or there is an abundance of the zooplankton in that yeah. water, and you I mean you literally you almost kind of see it. I mean you can see the nature well, of the see water. It, so it'll it'll show up on a sounder sometimes because especially when the lake stratifies in the summer months and that thermocline forms. Uh -huh. That that change in temperature, that the thermocline where it rapidly changes over a short depth, is a physical barrier. It's like saran wrap across, and it, it's a barrier to mixing. So the zooplankton stacks up on there, and it will show up on your sounder if you're using electronics. It's just this line. Um, and, of course, the fish are going to be down there, too, because that's where the oxygen is, too. So it's this natural collision of predator and prey. Yeah, wow. that's, that's, you know, I'm, I'm sure there's guys already tying, like, what, probably size 42s, individual yeah. zooplankton out there. <laughs> but, uh, you know, no, I like the blobs. blobs, and we always think, you know, they're imitating a cluster or, you know, uh, or you're playing the color card, right? The fish are just tuned into that color. And orange being one of them, that could be one of the reasons, you know, that we talked earlier about that hot orange, you know, whether it's a hot spot, a bead, that just the fish seem to gravitate to, so... Yeah, yeah, I guess talking about kind of this, you know, unconventional fly fishing wisdom, you know, in the weeds, so to speak, right? Yeah. Um, I noticed Nico in particular this year when I've been fishing with him, he kind of started playing with this pattern he calls the yak. <laughs> um, and, you know, yeah. it's just a beastly, you know, gaudy looking pattern. But, I mean, he was he was doing really good. And what he was doing is kind of the opposite of the tactic everyone talks about at Pyramid, where it's... <laughs> You want to have your sinking line with really light flies. Yeah. He, you know, this yak was, it's a beast. It's heavy. It's indicatory, you know, like yeah. it's it tungsten the whole nine yards. And, you know, I started playing around, you know, with some leeches doing the same thing as him because I don't have any yak tail. So, yeah. I had a, I I had a yak tail. So, I know. <laughs> Improvise. Um, but what we were finding is like, especially in those more aggressive months, uh, you know, crashing, essentially crashing those heavy patterns with a sinking line because how pyramid is with those drop-offs yep. right yeah. cast out and then you just start i mean just cranking it in and then right when you feel that shelf where your your fly crashes in and i've i i've always thought it was coincidence but of 
course, I'm starting to realize maybe it's not. Yeah. You know, I get snagged on a rock or I feel that shelf bite, you know, on my sinking yeah. line. Right after that, I get a good slam. Like they think maybe it's a pan, you know, that panic bait fish that's like kind of injured, crashes into the bottom, and that's the the boom, you know, yeah. um, at, at least at Pyramid, you know. No, and, it could be true. And it also could be that fish is in deep water, and as it hits the drop off, the fish realizes, I really don't want to go into that skinny water, so mm -hmm. I better eat that thing now because I'm not going in there to expose myself to trouble and, and take it, right? Yeah, um, exactly. You know, yeah. It's it's same kind of principle when you're just casting and stripping a sinking line where you always want to incorporate the hang into your retrieve, you know, because the fish often will latch onto your fly at some point during retrieve and they'll just follow it. They're interested but not committed. And then you go to raise your rod to cast again at the end of the retrieve and that's when you get slammed. You yeah. either get, yeah. you see a flash, a swirl, um, something like that. And that fish, you know, that rise uh, an acceleration triggers a reaction out of them. So with the hang at the end of every retrieve, it's always this slow, you know, a raise of the rod it can be slow, fast, middle paced, can be long, it can be short, and you just hold it there. And the cool thing is the fish are there, your flies just sitting at or slightly below the surface, you see the eat. They come right up mm -hmm. and, and take it. And we, you know, you mentioned Henry's Lake earlier. Um, that's one of the places that works very well when you're stripping um, leeches and, and nymphs and things like that they'll follow it and then that's they've got to make a decision right and then you can get them you can i'd say easily you could add 30 percent to your catch rate just incorporating the hang into every retrieve when you're retrieving flies yeah that, that hang is that hang is essential and it was kind of like trial by fire yeah you know, for for and on personally yeah and it was, it was instead of like kind of getting to the end of that retrieve and just like okay well let's just rip her out of the water and get it back out there it's like well no i got you know, I got another few feet of water to work with here. Then you just, you know, kind of bring that rod tip up nice and easy, you know, with a grip on it, maybe yeah. in case you get freight trained, yeah. you know, yeah. and, but like, you're right. Yeah. It, 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 uh, that 30%, I would say that's probably about right. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty close because I, I you, at the top of my head, I can think of, oh man, I got slammed X amount of times last season, right on the edge. Yeah. Or the other telltale thing that I like you brought up, Phil, was the fact of the follow. Yeah. the follow and even 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 if utilizing that technique and you're not getting a grab um with that adjustment on the follow that that gives you all kinds of information on like well i'm using something that's attracting them but now i need to incorporate something different in the action you know there's something you got to flip their switch they're interested but there's something not quite right it could be you might have to slow it down you might have to speed it up you might want to go smaller and that's part of the fun there's no magic silver i think sometimes in fly fishing we're looking for that silver bullet answer that just that's it and it's like unfortunately on tuesday that's it on wednesday at four o'clock it's not it anymore it's now this right? right or on this day it seemed to work and you go try the same thing the next day and it doesn't work so that's why we we that's why i love this sport we just keep learning and learning and learning and learning until we don't breathe anymore and then we don't learn so much <laughs> right yeah, yeah. kind of stop yeah, yeah. It's mean, out of all your videos like <laughs> But there's one thing you hound on it is that hang you know oh, and that's yeah. one thing that's when i think phil rally i think of you know yeah and and that's you know that's you know the Euro, you, you mentioned the the uh, european the english particularly the english scene they are yeah you know, the competition very can you know uh you know i believe a fishery that has a lot of competitions it's not as frowned on as it is here um you know and it, i think it improves the sport the quality of the angler and you learn new things i you know, i always say if 
you know, all, all the improvements in our car are from auto racing, you know, suspension right. and all that kind of stuff. So it's the same thing. And a lot of the things in fly fishing that come from competitive, you know, the whole Euro nymphing craze, jig, flat, jig, you know, beads, jigs, line improvements, all these techniques that we now or everybody's doing are all from, um, you know, have their, a lot of them have their roots in competitive fly fishing. Right. And we're all competitive yeah. to some degree. Nobody right. wants to be in the group, the one that didn't catch a fish that day. Right. <laughs> right. It's usually exactly. tough on your pocketbook. <laughs> yeah, that's true. You're buying. <laughs> You're buying. Yeah. Um, yeah, maybe we could we could uh, talk a little bit about some of the adaptations of some of the uh, the British and Scottish, you know, or the UK techniques, as we like to call them. Um, and we kind of touched on a little bit before recently here like with a little bit with the uh um i just read the name of the fly like our little the blob our blob yeah. our blob you know representing uh uh zooplanktons and then uh but maybe we like to dive in a little bit like like on the booby flies gurglers and stuff like how like why like why why does that work why and how because that's pretty alien for a lot of people over here yeah and it was funny because for me it started in was it 1990 yeah, 1990, the World Championships were in Kamloops, British Columbia. Mm. So that's in our my backyard. And I'm thinking, oh, boy, we're going to show, you know, these are our lakes. We're going to show the world. And we, we got our lunch. North America got our lunch handed to us. Uh. Because, A, the European anglers had just been doing competitive fishing. It's totally different game. There's no anchoring. There's no strike indicators. You know, a lot of the, the limitations and the rules are put in place to even the playing field. So it does come down to angler skill and not anchoring in the best spot and, and using that kind of technique. Sure. And so my eyes and ears were opened and I started actively um, buying English magazines and subscribing. And, you know, this was really just at the real dawn of the internet. So there wasn't a lot of stuff that you could get on the internet. Um, and just from there, just getting more and more, um interested in it and what they were doing right um and it's just a lot of times it's just that we all have the same problem we're trying to solve they just come at it in a different direction and it's like wow that just makes so much sense right they're they're attractor fishing because their fish are stocked and um so one of the things about attractors is freshly stocked fish no matter the size are usually pretty gullible for those kind of things because they spent their whole life up until that point in a pond and then they got thrown in a truck or into a net and then dumped into a lake and go learn how to feed. Right. They didn't know they weren't handed instruction manuals or anything like that. They're just and so they're samplers. You know, a friend of mine says they're like a two year old. Everything's in their mouth. So they're very, um, you know, very, very um, susceptible to attractors, techniques and flies. Right. And in fact, the English call it stocky bashing. Mm, right? Yeah, they Eagles do fish. <laughs> those attractor style patterns. So we're talking boobies with round foam eyes, uh, the blobs, um, watsits, which is a, a, a blob with a mop tail. And then my, probably my favorite is the fab, which, uh, yeah. which has a unique history. It actually, some of the English fisheries, as I understand it, we're getting um, sort of tired of, um, um, you know, people just fishing boobies and, and things like that and, and not fishing imitative flies and, and all that kind of thing. So they started banning flies with foam in the front, right? So uh, apparently a Scottish team, you know, knowing that the booby was a pretty effective competition fly, sort of said, well, if we put the foam at the back, is that a violation of the rules? And it wasn't. 
So that's what they did. They started putting a split foam tail in the back, taking the booby cord, the round cord you used to shape booby eyes with, tying it out and oftentimes splitting it. And then they would fish that. And it's a totally different action. That fly, it was a booby kind of wobbles and shakes. The fab pulls straight. And when you pause it, the ass end kicks up. So it's got this kind of rise fall. It's just a different action, right? And it's, um, um, and the other benefit of it, when they came in, and um, you know, doing well, and everybody wants to try and sneak a peek of their fly. They would actually tear the tail off, right? Ah. So now everybody thinks they're just fishing a blob, which is no foam. You know, uh, either you know, we tie them a lot with beads nowadays, but traditionally ha hasn't been. It's just that fritz on a hook looks kind of like an egg. In in some circles, some might argue it's more egg pattern, but um, um, so they were masking that. So the fab stands for foamarsed blob. That's where it, it came from. So. It's kind of got a unique little history to it, but they're all great flies um, to use. That's interesting. And I always kind of took, <clears throat> taken an interest recently to like the boobies and um, <laughs> yeah, that sounds so <laughs> funny. Let's, let's keep that in context. Yeah, right? yeah. <laughs> let's let's move right through it, that. <laughs> so how about the flies, to keep it family friendly, flies <laughs> utilizing foam. <laughs> <laughs> God, that's hilarious. Um Anyway, so like basically using them as as a tool to get above, you know, say like we're fishing uh, a still water that has a, a very heavily weeded bottom, you know, and we know that the fish are in that realm. However, it's very difficult for us to place, uh, you know, our flies in there without losing them, snagging them, and then, you know, going through that whole rigmarole to where we can suspend our flies above that particular weed bed or close enough to where we can make and maximize our presentation, whether it's with that um, that agitation, you know, that color, just, you know, you're getting that reaction, or if you have, if you can lead it with, you know, something of a real pattern, you know, like yeah. I know the English like to use buzzers. Yes. Buzzers can be big, you know. Yeah, buzzers or chronomids, it's their term for chronomid. Right. Yeah. So it's it's kind of a cool little thing where it's like, man, well, that's, it's so simple, but I feel mm -hmm. like as fly anglers, it's very easy to, complicate the most simple things you know and That's we're stuck <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah well and we're stuck with all these conventional thoughts in our head of like oh, i have to do it this way this way or this way you know like uh, if i'm gonna put a split shot on it goes here or here or nowhere else you know or, or whatever the case may be yeah, and or like, i don't believe in split shot yeah. <laughs> i don't believe in split yeah. shot like yeah. it's a religion right right yeah. right well like when i mean i've known taylor for a number of years when i first started fly fishing with him i was a no indicator guy yeah. No, like no matter what, no indicator, all feel. I'm like, I have an indicator. It's my fly line, yeah. and and it was an interesting way to fish for many years because talk about learning how to feel okay. everything. Yeah. Um. And then I kind of came to my senses and finally started diving more into indicator fishing. But um, it's interesting. But I, I simplified it as much as I could. Yep. You know, I'm 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 a big fan of wet fly fishing, like on rivers, and a lot oh, of people are like. It's it's got this appearance of being too simple, but you can make it. It can be complicated, but it's productive. You know. Yeah. No, you mentioned when when we when I started fishing, learning how to fish coronamids, because in the Western Lakes, you know, you have to come to terms with that insect because it's such a huge component of the diet. But you got to learn how to fish them, and um, we didn't have indicators back then. The fly line was the indicator, so we call it the naked technique: fishing a floating line and a long leader. Um, because the leader has no indicator on it, therefore it's naked. Um, and like you said, it taught you touch 
and patience. And those are skills that apply. You all of a sudden have that sort of sixth sense or seventh sense or whatever sense we're at right now, um, knowing when to take. And you'd watch the fly line for takes. You'd watch little little memory coils in it just straighten out. And you knew, and it was learning to set the hook when there was no feel, right? Yeah, just something right. looked weird. And and I guess my, my parallel, and it might be an ugly one for diehard European nymphers, but it's sort of the Stillwater equivalent of European nymphing. It's leader, it's pattern weight, it's sink time, it's and all this sort of watching for so, subtle signs of takes um, as well. And, and that's how I learned. And then, of course, the indicator came along and um, the rest is history. But arguably, my indicator setup is probably the most complicated leader setup I have, right? Because the real critical success particularly when fishing small bugs is you have level leader between your indicator and your fly. So when you set for eight feet, it hangs at eight feet. If you base your leader on a traditional nine or 12 foot tapered leader, half of that leader is butt section because they're primarily designed for fishing dries on rivers and streams. So you get that delicate turnover, fly doesn't crash down, spook a rising fish. Whereas we use, I use actually uh, Rio's indicator leader. It's a 10 foot leader designed for nymphing it's got about a two and a half foot butt section so between my indicator and my fly line i have this <clears throat> thicker butt section that's going to help turn that over because it's a tangle prone system um it also with the loop to loop connection and a little thicker diameter material it's not going to cut in and damage your fly line and that because it's it's mono it floats so that section between the thicker section floats so some, I know some some tire and there's nothing wrong with this at all. It's just a different way of doing it. Use level leaders entirely of fluorocarbon. Maybe it's all eight or ten pound, and maybe they'll step the final section down. Yeah. And that's certainly economical. It sinks well, um, but it's fine diameter. If you're using loop to loop connections, it can cut into that fly line, and fly lines are not cheap these days. Good ones. No. And um, it also, that fluorocarbon will sink between the fly line and the indicator. So when you go to set, you got to rip that out of the water. And some days that, some days it doesn't matter. Big balanced leech, you're probably right. It doesn't matter that usually a balanced leech take is, it's gone. But when you're fishing small bugs, you know, takes the indicator can slide left, right, go half down, or sometimes even pop up and rise because the fish is taking it sort of on the way up, mm. which puts slack in. And all of a sudden your indicator looks a little big, like, whoa. So anything that's weird, you set the hook on, right? So my that that's the most complex indicator system I have. Wow. Uh, sorry, complex leader system I have is when using indicators. And, and like Phil, like, you know, watching your videos and, and reading about you, you know, you when you're whenever you're in like a book or anything like mm -hmm. I've read or just an article, you know, um, your leader system, you know, and how you design it. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, obviously you're you're designing for any kind of depth with your yeah. indicator. And like you said, with with those light takes on the small flies, but not only that, right, like, you know, your leader leader length, mm -hmm. you know, um, having that mono, like you said, is definitely going to make a huge difference with a, you know, 25, you know, I know Crowley, like they fish crazy long leaders. Yep. Yeah. Crumbs, way yeah down. I've, been, I've been down to Crowley where you're fishing routinely 18 to 20, 22 feet below your indicator. So a lot of times yeah. I'll integrate a, a section of, you know, down there they were using leaders made entirely, well, three quarters of it made of braid um, because of the low stretch. Right, because what happens with nylon-based leader systems when you're fishing deep water is when you set the hook, there's such um, there's expansion. So what's happening is all of a sudden those those quick-release indicators 
um, they re they require tension to pop, right? The tension comes from you setting the hook and the fish yep. saying, I'm out of here. And all of a sudden there's that elasticity built in and it's not popping consistently. So you mm. either have to struggle and try and, you know, bite you know, like the old days when we used to bite toothpicks out of corkies before it, the releasing indicators came in, or you have to you end up trying to set harder and you end up breaking fish off. Right. So, um, so now I, I kind of take that indicator leader and add, you know, if I need to get down that, if it's gonna, it's gonna get a little. This is as close as uh, to uh, algebra as I'm gonna get. Promise. So that indicator, let's say ten feet, three feet of that ten foot leader is butt section. So I have seven usable feet. So if okay. I need to fish any deeper than seven feet below an indicator, I have to add tippet, right? And I right. like to keep my final tippet section. Typically, I'll have a split ring or a swivel there, two feet, right? So I've got if I want to hit fifteen feet down. I've got seven feet and I've got two feet is nine. So nine less 15 is six. That means I need to add six feet of tippet to that leader, to the swivel, and then the final two feet. And I can get down there. So I call that my adjustment zone because that's where I ebb and flow um, my leader length, right? Because you never want to cast a leader any longer than you have to. You, I always like, um, I always advocate trying to keep your indicator within about three feet of the end of your fly line because it, it just casts way better. If you get your indicator way out, you know, you got a 20 foot leader and you're fishing four feet down. It's just a disaster to try and cast that because all mm. the weight, the leader's out of balance and it's just, you overpower things. You get tangled, you get angry. I get hate mail. Um, you know, people unsubscribe <laughs> to the podcast. Cause that's names, from. All these <laughs> <laughs> I can just picture it now. Just so a, what a I do in those deep water situations is I'm now using, you know, I'll do a back to back, um, um, Duncan loops and integrate a section of, eight or you know eight to ten pound braid because braid is skinny and strong and that just gives that stiffness that lack of stretch in the leader and now all of a sudden i'm popping it's not a fun system to throw when you're chucking you know an indicator plus 20 some odd feet a leader below it that's not a, a fun system the, the, the good thing is is my general rule is the deeper your fish beneath your indicator, the closer to the boat you keep it. So when I, you know, I fished um, Crowley with Ernie Gully um, a number of years ago, and we were fish, we barely had a, a, a rod length of fly line out the rod tip and then to the indicator because there's such distance between the indicator and flies that fish takes that fly and starts to move with it. It instantly senses, I think, not what I thought it was, right? So it's starting to let go of that fly. And if you're too far away, you're not going to be able to see or even react to that to that take. That's why I think most of the times when you set with an indicator, you get the fish right in the roof of the mouth, right in the snout. Because yeah. that fish, I think, actually expelling the fly. And when you recognize a take, you set up, right, and pull that fly up in there and get that great hook set. So, yeah, you, you don't have to. You can almost flop it over the side of the boat or wiggle it out and then just you know, wait for it to react and then set on it. So you don't want to be bombing out 70, you never want to be bombing a 70 foot cast with an indicator, right? No, yeah, no, those, those are great pointers too, because um, I've, I've done Crowley, um, I got a good, we got a good uh, quote unquote bear fish buddy, Blake. He's yeah. he's religious about Crowley. I mean, he lives almost yeah. right there. And, and, and he recently, in all his years fishing it, uh, this summer they've gone deep and he mm -hmm. actually went out with a guide uh, just to see what the guys are doing, you yeah. know. It's um, a great way to learn a fishery. Yeah. yeah, and and he's like, hey, he's like, we, we were going down almost to 30 feet, you know, and drop shotting and all this type of stuff, and yep. and uh, so it, it's kind of interesting when you when you see a different technique. But what you said there about using 
uh, like the braid and, and whatnot. And I think a key, a really important thing that you mentioned there was the distance of the indicator away from the fly line. I think that's mm -hmm. a huge mistake a lot of people make. I know I've made it without even thinking about it. And you're like, man, this just isn't casting like it did before. I know well, there's a bunch like of horrible. <laughs> yeah, you're like, I can't. I'm like, I know I can do better than this, but always don't think about that relation of the indicator away from the fly line. That's and, and part of me know. even thinks like, you know, so many of us start on rivers, right? Mm -hmm. uh, fly fishing. That's kind of like the epitome of fly fishing in our yep. pints. And, you know, when you have that distance between your fly line and your indicator in that instance, uh, you know, on a river, the mending's phenomenal, right? When you yeah. have that, you know, so you're like, oh, look at that drag free drift. So then we bring that to the lake and we're like, <laughs> yeah. and we're like dirt, you know. Yeah, because like, we don't have what, that what, current to help us. Exactly. <laughs> and we don't have that tension, right? Yeah. Now we have a stagnant, you know, yeah. potentially stagnant lake. Yeah. So right. that could be definitely a cause too. Yeah. And I think there's one other thing I picked up. It was in one of your how to fish stillwater videos. And it was a, one of the coolest tips I think I've ever picked up. And it was such a simple tip. And it was in regards to when you're tying a multiple multiple uh, fly indicator rig mm -hmm. um, on on some of your top flies. Let's say like you got your, your, your bottom fly, then your top fly. There's a tendency to, let's say, if you're tying that in with a surgeon's knot, to tie that knot up and away from your bottom fly so you yeah. get the correct arch in it which I've always yeah. done, but I've always, and then you said this, this, it was like this light bulb went off. I'm like, oh, duh. You're like, well, yeah, you know, but if you have it like that, then you said the same thing. Yeah, it does keep your fly away, out and away from wrapping around the main line. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you probably have, a, you, you tend to break off. Like, you know, that yeah. fish can literally pull that knot out and you're like, well, just do this, tie in the, uh, you know, tie that that line down towards the, uh, you know, your, your lead fly. Your, your anchor fly and then what do you you just putting are you just putting a half hitch in that you're half coming back on, on the underside so i yeah if i'm used to i use triple surgeons knots only because i can't I, I just can't tie a blood knot thin diameter i just gave up years ago and went triple surgeons way easier um That's easy. so yeah i just put a half hitch underneath and then snug that up and then that'll make the you know the the uh, the, the the dropper tag stand out a little more perpendicular to the leader right and 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 fouls less and in in sometimes if you get a tug that'll call and you miss the fly so it, you know it had two or three different which fly did it eat the, typically the one it grabbed and let go of it'll be drooping down more because it'll slip that half hitch a little bit and the english call it the telltale dropper right so oh uh, yeah because sometimes you wonder you're fishing a two-fly rig and you're like well which one did it hit yeah and and i know i was discussing with taylor because i showed him a few times I'm like, check this out. I'm like, man, you know, if, if it hits this one, well, you'll know it because yeah. it's going to look different. You know, um, I think I've, more, I've snagged more on it, you know, like, yep, I definitely snagged on that one because it comes all pulled, you know, but yeah. what a great indicator just pulling it out going, oh, yeah, it hit that one. Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, the only way you tell on doing the top tag end is when you snap off on the fish. Yeah, and you, and you know, that. that's like, yep, you took that fly and I don't have yeah. it. <laughs> and in the other way, like you'll eventually you'll consume that dropper, right? So you've either got to tie in a new section and tip it to get a new dropper tag form. And the risk of doing that is you're going to, you know, slowly and subliminally going to change your leader length. Mm -hmm. So when you're fishing the naked technique, which I talked about earlier, leader length is part of it, right? You got to have the right length of leader to get your fly down. And if you're chopping and changing and slowly making these adjustments, you know, all of a sudden you're out of the zone. So. Mm -hmm. Once I've consumed that tippet knot, I use um, 
it's called, I call it the sliding dropper. Well, I'll take eight inches of, you know, tippet material I'm going to use for a dropper tag. I'll put a perfection loop in one end and I loop that around the leader passing the tag end, you know, the, the opposite end of that dropper tag through the loop end. So I loop it around and snug it tight. And then I'll snug it tight about an inch, an inch, an inch and a half to two inches above the the um, tippet knot or a swivel. You got to have a stopper in there because it'll just slide all the way to the point fly if you don't. So if the beauty of that is you can add and change droppers to your heart's content, right, without adjusting the leader length. And um, if you get a grab because you snugged it tight a couple inches above the stopper, it'll pull down tight when you get a grab and that dropper also has more ability to freewheel and spin and and just generally not get fouled up like it does if it's coming off out of the leader at a fixed angle so yeah i'm not a big fan of tying to the the um um the bend of the hook no no i like that no. for you know you want to change the upper fly you got to pretty you know take everything apart i worry that you would negatively impact the action of that upper fly by tying a weight to its butt um you know right. sometimes especially fishing vertically with indicators a fish can come in open its mouth attempt to take your fly and because there's tippet going out of the hook eye and down to the point fly it hits that and you know pushes it away or just feels foreign and the fish doesn't take it you know so it's yep. it's you know if somebody's starting out it's definitely the least tangle prone but um, you know, I sort of say let's persevere and, and learn, you know, just fish shorter, stiffer dropper tags um, as opposed to going that and then just get more and more comfortable. And I have good days where I could fish a 14 foot dropper and not get a tangle. And I have days I couldn't fish a one inch dropper without messing it up. So <laughs> we all have those days where I should have stayed in bed. Right. <laughs> That's true. That's yeah. true. I think we all do. Yeah. So, I, 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 Phil, I wanted to uh, segue a little bit here and, sure. and talk a little bit about some of the local waters that you have fished in Nevada. And and we're excited about that because um, we just don't get that much play on other than Pyramid Lake. That's probably your number one, number one still water here, obviously, yep. you know, but there's, there's a handful, a little bit more than a handful of other waters. Um, in both western and eastern Nevada, and I know you had uh, in recent times uh, you experienced. I think uh, in eastern northeastern Nevada, I believe you took a trip to Crittenden. Mm -hmm. I did. And, I always wanted and, to do that. Yeah, and, and I remember <laughs> we saw that YouTube video pop up, and something you know it came up under your subscription. Oh, you know, and it said something. I just see this title, Nevada, you know, yeah. Nevada fly fishing. I'm like, well, this can't be right. Well, what's Phil doing down here? Like what, Nevada? I'm like, all right. And I played it. I'm like, oh. And I learned two things. One, um, well, I learned about Crittenden, and then two, well, your techniques are pretty much universal. So <laughs> at least on the video, I made it look good. But, but yeah, trout, don't know, trout don't know international boundaries, right? They, no. they eat the same things, and um, I think there's a lesson for the world to learn there. But um, um, right, yeah. <laughs> Um, no, it was the same thing, you know, and I, I started out that day and I, um, I've always made a point whenever I travel and speak at shows and things like that, if I can tag a day or two on and, you know, it's actual fishing, you know, time to fish, it's not frozen tundra. Um, uh, I'll try and, and fish some of the local water. So, um, it just helps when I'm doing presentations. I can say this works on Crittenden cause I was there and did it right. Or, or pyramid or Crowley or, 
Plus, I just I've heard of these places like you guys. I want to go fish them, and yeah. uh, so it, you know, typically it's um, nothing much was happening. We got there, we we're on the water. By the time we got the tubes and everything put together, I'd say nine o'clock. So the hatch is starting, but not really heavy. So I've typically I'll fish a leech, right? Mm-hmm. Strip it, cat. You know, just get something. You know, because it's fish always seem to respond to a leech pattern. You can get a fish, and then you can throat pump it, right? And then that starts the game going. And then the coronamid started popping, and then it was just pretty damn good for the rest of the day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they were hatching in pretty good numbers, right? So it was, you know, size 12s and 14s, uh, chromies, uh, zucchinis, which is a um, black um, um, holographic mylar body. Um, you know, basic, you know, black is by far your most predominant coronamid color. And then when they get all inflated with the gas, they get kind of silvery. So, um, and then gunmetal chromies, we call them with the, used to buy Flashaboo 6916, the original color. Now you can't get it anymore. Somebody's using anti-static bags and, you know, blue dun UTC thread, all these quests for that sort of, oh. uh, silver gray color. Oh, it gets, it gets a little out of hand sometimes, for, oh, you know, basically a bug that's a bead, a body and a rib, um, can be so many variations and permutations. It's, uh. It's it's good and it's crazy sometimes, but uh, yeah, it was gave, fishing really well. You just gave Taylor something to really focus on. On he's already immersed in fly tying, so now now he knows this. He's gonna be this is the man right here that'll dig for the material and make Go something. Ahead. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, we're always half the time we're like, ooh, that looks like we're using window tint. You know, you put on cars, cutting that into strips. And making bodies out of that. Anti-static bags are, are popular. Different colored mylars, um, all that stuff. You know, if anything, it does. And it there's no favorite material. It just depends on the dye lot, the color it comes in, and that we're going to try and use it. And long as we can keep the fly nice and skinny, that's probably the biggest thing. Is you know, really, I like really thin coronamids. Um, uh. Comparing to the natural. So no, Corinda was a cool place because you've also got fighter planes buzzing you all day long, which. I caused more than a few mistakes. I tried to, on the video, tried to get one on camera, but they're traveling just slightly faster than their sound, so you'd hear them and look Uh up the sound, but he's already gone by, and we had one. Occasionally, they'll drop down and give the lake a buzz, which probably Mm. scares the crap out of the fish, but it's sure (laughs) cool watching something go that fast, (laughs) 100 feet off the deck, right? So that was was kind of fun. That's awesome. Yeah, I I used to live in eastern Nevada, and... The, that's one of the few places the planes tip you know they're going supersonic like yeah surprisingly a lot you know especially on the northern end of the state over there yeah, there's no, just they're thinking out oh, there's nobody down there let's see what this thing can do right i can finally play you know finally open her up and see what she can do okay. yep <laughs> <laughs> next thing you know they're in new jersey but whatever <laughs> right 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 <laughs> going a little going a little too fast but yeah yeah, yeah, so that that Crittenden trip got it caught our attention because it's actually it's not it's not a believe it or not not a very well known lake um, oh. just due due to the uh, and I'll say that it's it's well known within circles. However, if if I threw that name out um, out here, just say hey Crittenden, I probably get a cross look like what'd you call Sportsman's me? Sportsman's Warehouse uh, fishing report, you know, like yeah. on the wall thing. You're gonna be like what? Yeah, what's 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 that? So it was kind of cool to see, like, oh, where is that? Oh, okay. And then, you know, and there's a whole there's a whole lineup out there. You got Wild Horse Reservoir, you got Wilson Reservoir. Uh, what was the one of the sheep? Um, uh, sheep Creek. The Sheep Creek. Yeah. Oh, home um, of the Sheep Creek special. Exactly. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. And and this might interest you. So what did we discover last night about sheep creek? We didn't go there, but we were doing some reading on the Nevada Department of Wildlife website about it. And like, well, let's see what species are there so we can go check it out. And I had a you know a handful of the warm water. Uh, crappie had the walleye. Yeah. And we're like, oh, cool, walleye. And then here's the unique one that stood out. It's the only fishery in the state oh. that's stocked with or maybe. Oh, no, that, so not sheep creek. Oh, it's not sheep creek. That, that was, uh, oh, no. You made me forget. No, well, <laughs> it's one of them. It's not sheep creek. But. No, um, musky are in. Is it boulder? No. No. Anyway, we'll, we'll, we'll he'll look it up. But this body of water, it's close to sheep. It's it's in the same, it's, it's, it's on like the, two you or know. three hours away, which is close uh, to yeah. It's only a cripple. It's a couple grid squares away on a map. Yeah. It's close. Yeah. yeah. Uh, tiger musky. Ooh. It, yeah. Yes. That's what we said. And, and and the state's actively stalking them to control. What was it, Taylor? The control the carp population. The carp population. Yeah. You know, yeah. so um, that that was that was interesting because we only have one other body of water in Nevada and out by Ely that has uh, such a predatory fish and straight up uh, northern pike. Yeah. Um, that, that were illegally planted there, um, but well, they've, they've thrived <laughs> yeah. and they're still yeah. thriving, you know, so. Yeah. No, I just finished a trip up to northern Saskatchewan, uh, was filmed for the new fly fisher at Arctic Lodges, um, chasing, we were getting northerns to 45 plus inches, you know. Wow. Yeah, and uh, got some great drone shots of them coming in and eating the fly, like just, you know, there's one thing about a pike or a muskie, when they commit, there's no trout turn away at the last minute they just come roaring up and usually smoke it <laughs> which is a lot of fun oh that sounds they're, so they're, awesome they're, they're fun and and, 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 uh, and those kind of fishing i often get asked i fish use the same basic principles for trout still water trout fishing that i do for other fish right just adapt you know they they all have the same basic needs they got oxygen requirements they need they like cover they like to be near food mm -hmm. um those kind of things and you just adapt maybe the flies a little bit or the your present you know retrieve speeds and stuff like that but the you know we fish walleye under indicator they'll that's slip bobbering right that's <laughs> that's a basic walleye technique right what so, is it you look at oh uh, it's called chimney reservoir okay chimney chimney reservoir chimney. let me so write that down chimney <laughs> reservoir yeah write it down yeah <laughs> write it down and i've only been there once yeah and i was just kind of you know i didn't have a slow tube or anything and yeah I mean, no luck, of course. I was just tossing some leeches and stuff for sure, seeing if there's any warm water kind of going on. But, uh, I mean, you know, tiger muskie in Nevada, that's like, that's definitely a technique. I use it actually, you know, the, the figure eight, the muskie yeah. eight, you know, uh, between between the hang and then when I'm still not catching fish, I'll, I'll do a, a pike eight out there yeah. at Pyramids sometimes messing around <laughs> and get lucky, you know. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. but Nevada's got some it, perfect climate. You know that semi-arid, to mm -hmm. arid, but um, that's usually those those lakes either side of the continental divide, the Rockies. Um, they're always usually home to because just the way Mother Nature formed the planet, those areas are rich in nutrients, right? And it's that yeah. shallow, muddy bottoms, rich in nutrients, grows weeds, home for bugs. Put fish in there, they get big, right? Yeah. It's it's a pretty and it's, and it's one of those dirtier, you know. Yeah. Rich lakes, you know, it's, I think it has what mercury in it, though, right? It's got a little mercury, but I never. Mercury, like, I was, when I was growing up, that was a toy. <laughs> that was a toy. <laughs> you know, but. Uh, a, a toy ball. and a car. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, God, now we're really going places. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I guess that kind of, you know, the dirty water versus the clean, because on our uh, western front of the state, like, 
pyramids are only big, big lake. Yeah. Kind of everyone's fly fishing. That's very alkaline lake. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's mm-hmm. and it's clear. Um, you know, but when we move east, I mean, it, you know, dirty water and and you know, really a lot of nutrients. You know, you got the Ruby Mountains that pour into like South Fork. Um, yeah. Ruby marshes, which are phenomenal, mass, you know, really probably the biggest trout in the state yeah. are on those, you know, dirtier, you know, more nutrient rich yeah. lakes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but as we move west, we start getting that, you know, the clarity, you know, real clear water, um, you know, and, and locally in Reno, at least, a lot of people tend to move up to the mountains where mm-hmm. now it's, you know, you got the weed bottoms. Mm-hmm. Um, we got weed bottom, weed shores, weed bottom, clear yeah. water. And, you know, and so it changes the game up, you know, with with how you create your flies, your presentation, mm-hmm. just because now you're focused more on natural, you know, in the clear water, you're like, oh, no, are they going to, you know. Yeah. Well, we do have some out. clear waters, that, you know, some lakes that fish are really productive um, with clear water, especially the marl lakes that get that sandy lake substance it's just precipitated calcium that falls out and lays on the bottom and gives you the illusion it's sand until you step into it and disappear up to your armpits yes <laughs> uh, but you know down i you know i've gone down to argentina three times to fish lago strobel and it's clear water but um it's the right kind of chemistry you know the water ph is you know um high enough that uh, for scuds to develop they need a certain you know a higher ph like a seven or even a low eights for their exoskeleton. And then they breed like rabbits. And of course, those fish down there, that's the only thing they feed on down there is zooplankton, snails, and scuds primarily. So oh, it's, no. you know, it's everybody goes down there with these big streamers and I'm fishing the same number 10 bruised balanced leech or CBO, which is a Canadian black with an orange bead. Great color. Uh, yeah, a great color. And, uh, you know, you're getting some huge fish down there on tiny flies no you know what not what you'd expect for a fish that's 20 plus pounds to be eating you know a size 14 scud <laughs> right yeah, yeah. And, and phil if you could explain I, i'm glad you brought that up yeah. how many colors are in canadian black summer i picked <laughs> i picked some of that up i'm like oh there's no black oh here's a canadian black and i tied some leeches with that and i'm like oh it's like the colors of the rainbow in this stuff it, yeah it, it's great but it's it's not just black i mean i think well, i saw I- I think it's a variation of the um, um, Canadian black, the Canadian mohair brand that used to be out years ago. And John Romer, who's uh, the brainchild behind Arizona Semi-Seal. Yeah, yeah, that's what he came up with, that blend. And and I was joking my tying presentations. It's like Canadian black, Canadian bacon. It's like we eat the same bacon as everybody else. Our black is the same as everybody else. But when you look at that Canadian black color, it's yellows and reds and you know, it's got a black base, a black nylon, a mohair base, but the, the flash materials that are blended into it, you know, turn it into that great color that just, you know, I think it's just got a universal appeal at all depths. You know, one yeah. of those colors is going to pop and, right. and be a trigger for the fish. So it's a, it's no, it's number two with the bruise leech right behind it is that CBO. Oh, that's a good feeling right there. Yeah. 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 So hey, let's talk about a little bit. I know you had an experience at Pyramid and I think we would like to hear about that. I know you kind of got more from what you described to me in one of our conversations, you talk, it sounded like more of a cultural <laughs> experience, cultural? A, a cultural experience. Like, I mean, you know, coming to a lake where traditionally, you know, you're fishing still water from a watercraft. And, I mean, you could fish from a boat out there, but uh, it has its days. It has its days, but it's I'm saying with, with, with yeah, the ladders. flies with them. <laughs> <laughs> You'll be dead. <laughs> right 
Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, but what we're going to ask is maybe you could tell us a little bit about your experience at Pyramid. Just, you know, your perception, how it, how it went and what you, what you thought of it. Yeah, it was uh, it was cool because it was it was one of those bucket list um, destinations that I'd always wanted to fish. And uh, just a second, I'm playing with my lights and um, um, so I got a chance. But, you know, the, it, the whole ladder experience, because um, most times, most just about 98 percent of the lakes I ever fish, you just can't fish from shore. Um, and it, whether it's access issues you know, you might have a right away for a boat launch and that's it. Most people launching their boats don't appreciate somebody fishing in the boat launch. Um, um, you know, you got trees behind you. So back cast is an issue. Uh, you've got weed beds in front. So even if you hook a fish, how are you getting it from the outside of the weed bed to the inside where you are? Um, and if it's so muddy, you take one step and you're, you're gone. Right. So yeah. it's neat to be able to, you know, to have a bottom and stand on those ladders and see all the custom ladder designs that people have done. I got a kick out of that that, uh, you know, had rod holders and all kinds of, you know, quite the, you know, but for that fishery, it's great. But the thing you got to, as you probably can respect, is you got to remember when you hook a fish and you go to get off the ladder that um, you're about two feet off the bottom. So when you just blindly step off the ladder to deal with your fish and forget that you're on the ladder, <laughs> it's a bit ner it's a bit nerve wracking. Sure. <laughs> like you think you're going down and never coming back up again right uh, so, yeah that was i did that that was an experience yeah yeah yeah, yeah. a baptism a full baptism yeah full, literally there yeah, yeah and everybody yeah. asks you know all my friends same with argentina well, why don't you fish in boats because uh, if you're not careful you'll get yourself killed because those lakes can get windy fast and you know worst case you know best case scenario you might end up drifting um um across the lake and and have to get a helicopter to pick you up and deal with that embarrassment and cost or you yeah. can you know you know that's where phil drowned uh so that's where phil yeah. drowned. <laughs> <laughs> you know because strobel was the same way you'd be flat you could have a flat calm morning and uh and then 10 minutes later you're five foot swells and 60 mile an hour winds right yeah. so it's yeah, and the fish are all close to shore anyway, right? That's where food is, and that's where they like to hang out if they can. The, the middle yeah. of the lake is deep and, and for the most part, barren for them, and it doesn't have the same amount of feed food opportunities other than the zooplankton we discussed earlier, and maybe right. some crossbait emergencies. But uh, lunch lives in the shallows, so it does, it yeah. does, and it's interesting. Just just to touch on that, I know I had personally I had an experience with pyramid where. Uh, kind of mid to post spawn time which is uh digs into like mid-march through april um and touches into may when they finish up um they kind of turn off they'll go what we'll call them they'll turn on they'll turn on zombie mode yeah and you'll have your ladders out there and those things will literally cruise right underneath you i mean yeah. you, you could drop a rock in the water and they'll just watch it just watch and it's like nothing phases them yeah. um including you know your streamers and stuff so those aren't our target fish. The ones that we're targeting are sitting a little bit further out. So it's like, well, you know, if they're in spawn mode, we tried some colors. And one of the one I tried, I, I tied up a beetle. I called it the chorizo beetle because I used a, like a brown, like a brown shell. And yeah. then I used a fluorescent orange uh, chenille uh, for the body because I'm like, oh, this will look spices. like spices. Yeah, it's spices. Yeah. Right, spice. But I'm like, well, this is going to look like row. You know, I'm like, you know, if you got some bucks and hens out there. 
you know, I'm like, oh, the males are probably going to like crush this. And if there's a female and they think it's an egg sack, they're going to pick it up, move it. You know, I'm trying to treat them like salmon. Yeah. You know, and um, uh, um, my screen just doubled here. You got two heads now. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> here, I'll get rid of that one. There we go. Um, <laughs> anyway, so it's kind of funny. I'm like, well, and this orange pattern worked, right? You know, you get yeah. it out in the depths. And then you start getting really aggressive hits. And now I'm thinking, I'm like, you know, I'm like, I'm just wondering. I'm like, maybe some of that was, uh, uh, you know, that that turn on where it's just, it's an impulse. You know, they're aggravated by the aggravating color. Yeah. Get out of my way. I want to hit it. You know, and another part of me thinks me thinks that in that spawn mode, you know, they're barely eating, you know, yeah. or they're minimally eating. And they, they looked at it as a zooplankton or something where they're like, oh, let's take a little bite out of this. Like those reaction strikes. I think, you know, like, I think maybe I can just rule that out what I just said about the zooplankton because they're aggressive yeah. freight train, just angry. It's yeah. not like not like, oh, I'm going to take this. It's like I better be holding on because it's it's violent. So. There you go. You just answered my oh. question, Phil. Thank you. Sorry. You yeah. didn't have to say anything. Let's <laughs> say. Uh, um, and then we wanted to touch on. We wanted to get some input from you, and then we'll then we'll move into our favorite section here. Um, the favorite question we want we we'll want to ask you. But we'll get to that. So we have we have two lakes that we recently hit, Phil, and. Uh, at, well, one lake was Kerman, mm -hmm. um, and you have experience on Marlette. Though we'll talk about Kerman first. So Kerman uh, is uh, a high Sierra lake. It's on the California side of the border, mm -hmm. um, off Sonora Pass, and it is exclusively a brook trout and Lahontan cutthroat trout fishery. That's it. Yeah. Uh, no other fish species in there. Not even bait fish. You know. Um, so. It's been known as a trophy fishery over the years. It had a little bit of degradation to it where it hasn't been paid attention to. So we took an exploratory trip out there. Uh, kind of just wild guess. You know, let's see what's out there. Let's hope there's something out here from the history reports. There has to be something in there um, and gave it our best shot. And then Taylor is the one that came up with, with the success out there. I think I had one or two takes, but Taylor came up with, you know, the Hottons and the Brookies. But it was a long day. And it was a hard experience, and ultimately, I think you came up with the fish on leeches. Ironically, was it a black leech or black beetle? Leeches were, I think, one, but it was really, it was really beetles. It was beetles and sinking line. Yeah. Yeah. And we did the fill. When we went out there before we got in the water. We studied the water. Mm -hmm. We just watched it. We watched for yeah. rises. We watched just to see what's going on. We actually went into waded into the water a little bit and we pulled some bugs out you know and we we tried to find we saw we saw boatmen we saw back swimmers we were like cool great back swimmers boatmen awesome dragonflies or i'm saying damselflies yeah great you know and then you see some fish jump and you're like great and then you see a mayfly and you're like even better i got a bunch of those yeah. and then we go out there i'm gonna tie on let's see i'm gonna tie on the damsel i'm gonna go to this weed bed and i'm gonna strip it across and we're gonna we're gonna hit gold <laughs> um mayflies oh i see a mayfly popping you see fish rising oh, i'm gonna throw some mayflies i'm gonna sink one and i'm gonna float one yeah <laughs> you know and then it was just like this like slowly going through the the tackle box like what's going on here and taylor finally nailed it but interesting fishery where uh, what we what we learned at the end of it and i think what we want to ask you maybe what your approach would be 
is that one, we have an extensive amount of food source in there. Um, we bought them nutrient rich, uh, heavy, 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 and we didn't think about this, but a heavy scud population. Yep. But like just like the back swimmers, like we're thinking about those, like, oh, the back swimmers, let's throw some of those in there. Wrong, because these guys, you know, I think it was all scuds and then because, I mean, you caught off the beetle, but mm-hmm. um, maybe what I'm trying to get as is approaching like a weedy bottom, you know, uh, a mountain lake where you're kind of clueless. Um, you know, what what would be some key like patterns that you would go at it with or maybe that we're not thinking of that would be a, a searching pattern? Like aside from looking techniques. for the bugs and stuff, yeah, it's like, yeah. you know, like. Yeah, because you guys did you guys did everything I would have done is um, mm-hmm. You know, poke around the shoreline, see what's on the menu, um, yeah. look for moving fish, always a good uh, habit. Um, you know, I like sitting around um, drop-offs and points and chain, you know, where they have a deep water refuge nearby, mm-hmm. and particularly brookies, because they they like deep water. Deep, the, the, you know, on water temperature, I would have, I don't know what the water temperature was, but brookies oh, like deep, cold, you know, like cold water. Um, yeah. So they may have been off in the deep, and rookies can be notoriously moody um, as well, <laughs> as, as if you didn't already figure that one out. <laughs> yeah, they um, were moody. and I would have, you know, in some ways, I would have gone and, and tried to imitate some scuds too, mm. right? And, and you know, it seems it's funny because as this bloody light of mine keeps dying on me, um, <laughs> your, your listeners probably don't care. Um, uh, um, you know, we'll fish if there's a huge chronomids coming off, like size 14 green. We'll we'll put a 14 green on and we'll think twice about it. But when we see that equal number of number 14 scuds, we're like, I'm not fishing those because you get so, you know, I'll feel like a needle in a haystack. Why am I doing this? And it's exactly the same logic. We tend to fish the scuds a little more. You can hang them under an indicator, but also little short one inch, like very aggressive one inch poles choppy oh. erratic and I, just because they're erratic swimmers and it makes sure stand out a little bit as well it's the movement that grabs them so i would have tried that um you know i guess the ultimate way is i'll have to come down <laughs> yeah i think i think that's what we're trying to ultimately get to is just ask you so many okay. questions and play so dumb but phil come on you know what you have to show us because we yeah. just don't know what we're doing yeah, yeah. we can all get frustrated together <laughs> yeah that's it yeah and and you know when, when i was playing around that lake uh you know like i had a couple scud patterns or scuddy looking you know suggested patterns scuddy yeah you know just dirty you know little little squigglies yeah. in them and you know, because we we did our, did the research, you know, heavy scuds, and I was just like, man, you know, like we're really not. But then I thought about, hey, five years of of no love from you know yeah. California Fish and Game and stuff, stocking wise, and I was like, I'm gonna have to search, you know. I, so I just I I luckily I brought my pyramid sinking line, you know, just yeah. super heavy one, and I was like, I'm gonna kick around, and then I didn't actually bring any pyramid flies, but then I was like, you know what, we got boatmen and i know you always talk about boatmen and i just i don't know why i don't tie more of them which right after that trip i went psycho and tied a bunch because my uh, <laughs> For next a good friend of ours uh julian he actually came with us and he brought a little bit of pyramid flies and i was like do you have a black beetle <laughs> and he's like yeah man i'm like perfect and and that was the one yeah. You know, they could have taken like, that as a they could have taken that as a dragon nymph too. The other yeah. thing with trophy lakes is if they've got big fish in them, there's not usually a huge population, 
right? Because they all need space yeah. to grow. So you could be just dealing with a situation. There's not a lot of, you know, the fish in there are all good, but there's not a lot of them as compared to, you know, a more regularly stocked lake. So it's, and I find that when fish are, um, you know, they tend to hang out by age class. So, you know, typically, you know, the, the bigger fish have been around longer. Most of their classmates are gone because they've been eaten or caught or something. Um, so there's not, and, and when, the, you know, um, that's why catching, you know, freshly stockfish is easy because they're all super competitive. They all swim around the big group and they all want what the other one has. So they're, mm-hmm. they're you know, they'll, they'll, they'll take a fly or take a, take a lure or a bait or whatever, um, just out of, so the other guy doesn't get it. Whereas a big fish is solitary, very cautious, um, because they didn't get big. It's not by being stupid. I think they're probably the most paranoid fish out there and everything freaks them out right and if anything's not right they're not touching it right so it just makes it you know makes it more challenging um you know there's probably a combination of reasons why right oh yeah no doubt. Yeah. yeah and you know really what brought me to the beetle was i was like well there's lct in here it works in pyramid right yeah because <laughs> you, well, like, you know yeah. how to fix that right you know how to yeah. fish oh, yeah. confident in it um and that that's definitely the way to go with it yeah that's what it, that's what ultimately ended up working so that's <laughs> what we tied up for the next trip, but unfortunately, it's got a bit hot here and and whatnot. Sure. And they and, and they did get a plant of about a thousand brookies that actually they held over. Um, so normally, when they plant the brookies in there, they plant them at, uh, from what I understand, around the six inch range. Mm-hmm. Um, these got held over for a whole season, and they went in at ten to twelve inches, and sometimes a little bit bigger. And they plant a thousand of those, and that's traditionally about a fifty some acre lake for, as we saw it. Yeah. Um, so I mean, a thousand fish in that size. And I mean, they'll they'll dissipate, you know. But we're like, let's just give they'll them a break until the, the fall. The bigger brookies will eat them. <laughs> that's the thing. Yeah, yeah. Or, or the LCTs. And the LCTs. You know, because yeah. I caught what what did I catch? Like two or three LCTs. Yeah. And I broke off a couple times. Um, you know, and then I was like, I need to use my fifteen pound pyramid leader yeah. too. Why not? Oh yeah, he uh, didn't he didn't go <laughs> he didn't go skinny on leaders. Yeah, you got. Uh, I don't. You, I go as got, thick as I can get away with. My rules: if it fits through the eye of the hook. It's good. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So then I, you know, I caught those LCT and I was like, dude, like, you know, they're notorious for eating more than they can chew off. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you, you catch them in pyramid and, you know, you got the tail of a, you know, a kiwi hanging out of their mouth, yeah. you know, things like that going on. So I was like, are there any brookies left or did these LCT just gobble them all up, you know? And, and luckily I got lucky enough to, I got a 19 inch brookie, you know, like right at, you know, like you said with the, the drop off right I, I got along that weed you know the weed bed line where it's at the surface drop off there and i was casting toward the drop off and letting that sinking line just drop off those weeds just like mm-hmm. you know maybe a diver or you know yeah. damsel and then brookie ambush, ambush point right there and mm-hmm. bam you know yep. yep yep and we got one more lake that um it's open for a month a year. It's about what, 30 days or so. Yeah, it's 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 a really short season. I'm not sure the exact. And it starts at, been up there. Yeah, it starts in September. It usually starts about uh, early to mid September and ends mid October. It's Marlette Lake. It's right above Lake Tahoe, mm-hmm. on the Nevada side of Lake Tahoe. And it's used as like a broodstock yeah. lake here. Yeah. 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 And same um, thing. It's got you got cutties in there. You got uh, what else? You got. I think you brookies. cut bows. There's some brookies, I think. Mm-hmm. I'd have to look on the Endo website for everything. But, um, you know, it's it's actually a really big lake, and it's one of those you can't drive to, you know. So you got yeah. you got to get your, you know, float tube and 
do the hike or get a bike or whatever, you know, and get up there. Um, you know, and it's a big lake to cover, you know, so even if you get up there with your flow tube, now you got to kick all day, you know? Yeah. 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 And that's the dread, and that's what happened to us at Kerman. We are like, <laughs> and I had to fight the Sierra wind. That was um, So I guess my question to you would be, uh, you know, when you hit those, you know, in, you know, you don't get the boat, right? And you're like, yeah. oh, man, this is a big water. Um, you know, there's fish jumping everywhere, but but I know that, you know, just the, the notoriety of that lake, there was big fish in it, you know, and I was catching fish, but they, I knew they weren't the fish, you know, Yeah. the ones, and then you had that short season, you know, so like just kind of knowing just that little bit, you know, like, what do you think about it? You know, like, how would you tackle those, um, you know, in less accessible, um, more mysterious, you know, short season, you don't have a lot of time to figure it out yeah. kind of lakes, you know? Yeah, they're they're tough, um, you know. And usually, you know, when you first visit them, it's like anything. They don't, they're not gonna um, give everything away on the first date. So mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> they give you enough to keep you coming back, and right? Putting your time in. Um, but you know, like I said, I, you know, if I can get a hold of any kind of pre-trip information, um, maybe there's underwater contour maps somebody's made somewhere. The state's done something you can. Uh, find some of that information on a local fly shop, whatever it takes. Um, and and then when you get to the lake shore, it's just, you know, invest in that 15 minutes of snooping around, looking in the weeds, you know, looking for bird activity, moving fish, um, it, you know, what I call areas of transition where that shallow to deep, like you discovered, and just mm-hmm. try to put yourself on what you believe to be high percentage spots. And it's, I always say it's like hanging out at a supermarket. Somebody's going to come in and buy a quarter milk at some point. Right. And you're going to be there. <laughs> right. Yeah, so no, exactly. it's a lot of it's sometimes it's just time served. Right. And you just got to yeah. invest the time and, and not have too high expectations. Usually a trophy fishery is more about quality over quantity. So you might get that one good fish, but it's, it's impressive. You know, um, if you want that quality, you go to a lake that gets a higher stocking rate and, you know, is known to be a little more friendly to the, to the angler. But, uh, you know, sometimes those lakes, they put fish in, they don't survive either. Right. Because they're very, they're so productive. They're very prone to having winter kills or summer kills and things like that. And, you know, um, you know, and it takes a few years for those lakes to recover if they get restocked again or get fish back in them. So, Right. Oh, You're doing the right things. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's a good feeling. Speaking yeah. of good feelings, we got a great question for you. And one that always brings a smile to our face. And we're so curious to know. And it maybe helps us understand Phil a little bit more. And that is, we're going to ask you, well, this is going to be redundant because I'm going to ask you twice. We're going to ask you about your favorite burrito. Okay. Yeah. So, <laughs> Phil, maybe if you can in so many words maybe indulge us a little bit on uh, a fantastic burrito experience do you have a favorite burrito um not flavor wise as long as it's got beef in it <laughs> as long as it's got beef Meat. i like where this is going um, yeah um yeah because <laughs> ironically up here in canada we don't at least in my neck of the woods we don't have that i'm aware of any good um you know burrito places we right. got a mucho burrito, but I think that's more of a uh, a um, you know franchise store that's uh, you know the the McDonald's Wendy's of burritos. So I don't know if that's quite the, the, yeah, the same experience you'll get from you know the independently owned um, places. But <laughs> right. if I was if I was down there visiting, you said we're going to get burritos. I like cool, and I'd be looking up for meat and tomatoes in it, and you know 
little bit of spice, um, you know, kitchen sink stuff throws me. Yeah, I'll take that, 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 that. I, you know, if I individually like those items, they're going to be good all mixed together. So, uh, and I have, I have got good news for you, Phil, is that you are on the right track. Okay. That is actually the winning formula for us on the podcast. And personally, that, that, that the, my opinion, the ultimate burrito is one, yes, the meat content is very high. Yeah. Right. Whether it's beef or pork. Okay. Yeah. Um, we leave chicken out of the equation. Seafood. Uh, yeah. yeah. It's it, we're in the wrong space for that. We're yeah. in the wrong space. So so, uh, and then, uh, yes, we 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 welcome the presence of vegetables, but not too much. Yeah. Um, just just enough to bring a little color, a little flavor variation. Move, move it, yeah. I help, yeah. I help keep things moving. Thanks, right. Taylor. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I thought that was going right. to naturally happen anyway, but right, right. But we don't want too much of the food that our food eats, right? So yeah. we try to minimize that, right? Yes. Um. Uh. But one of the most important, the most important things, is the tortilla, and and I'll help you through oh, this, yeah. Phil. Is is, um, you know, a cold tortilla, no way. Um, it's got to be hot, and and the higher the higher the lard content, if it's a traditional tortilla, yeah. <laughs> this Phil's reactions <laughs> priceless. Yeah. The higher the higher the lard content in that, if it's like a traditional tortilla, like a yeah. handmade, um, it has a high lard content. It's lard and flour. Yeah. So when it is warm, Phil, and you have the contents, whether it's it's pork, if it's a carnitas, or if it's a uh, carne asada, or or anything, any of the yeah. above, that it almost you can almost see through it. It's oh, okay. almost like it's almost like like a cold day, warm house, foggy window. Mm-hmm. You can kind of make out the trees out yeah. the window, like you know they're there, but you can't tell exactly what they're. But you know they're trees. Same thing with the burrito. We want to be able to almost kind of see through, but not too much, because if you can see through, then then we have um, a situation of loss of structural integrity, and the thing will blow yeah. apart. <laughs> um, so I'm just saying, that's just something to look for. But yeah, I, I'm, that's exciting. So if you ever do come well, I down here, something new about the, you know, I never gave the tortilla much thought, but now I will. So oh. every time I go in a restaurant, Mexican, I'm going to be holding up. A, let me see your tortillas. And they go, what the hell is that? Crazy <laughs> Canadians? What the hell? Are they? Where did you learn that from? And I think <laughs> it's the stretch, you know, when yeah. there's that, just that little bit of stretch in it, you know. Okay. There, there is a, there is there's a bit of stretch. stretch factor where it has that. Yeah, it's hard to and here's another indicator for you, Phil. So if you're on the road and you pick up a burrito, let's say up in Fiora State side, and you're like, I'm going to give this burrito thing a whirl. Another thing to look for is, yeah, we were looking for a little bit of the transparency and whatnot. Um, uh, we want to look for the char marks because if they properly roll this burrito for you, they're going to warm the contents, they're going to warm the tortilla, mm-hmm. roll it up, and then they're going to put it either in a pan or on a flat top and they're going to seal it up for you. So they're going to sear it on both sides. So you should have not quite a char mark, but like a toast mark on both sides of the burrito. If you don't have that, um, doesn't mean it's going to be a poor quality, but I would be a little suspicious. You know, I would take your time. I would maybe kind of look at the people, you know, person that delivered the burrito, just give them a little bit of a cross look, you know, and then carry, (laughs) carry on with your day. But, you know, it doesn't mean the contents would be good, but anyway, so well, now Here I have are. something to do this weekend. Go on a burrito hunt. Go on a burrito yes. hunt. See what you can find. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Find, yeah. yeah. And, and, and Ben, my other podcast host, he does have one other measure for you, Phil. Okay. Um, and he's got a couple ones that are classic, but one of his favorite ones, if, if you're looking for these burritos online, you're like, okay, I'm going to find some burrito places. Uh, here's a key indicator of the go to the right place. 
the worse the Google reviews, the better position that you're in. You probably found some quality. So if you're more on the one or two star review side, that's probably where you want to go. That means you've you got a higher chance of food poisoning. That means the burrito's right for you. So risk and reward, right? <laughs> it is risk and reward, right? Yeah, because if it's a five star, it's too good. It's too clean. You know, somebody had too good of an experience. That means it appeals to too many people. We're not looking for that. We're looking for the appeal to the minimal base, the ones that that really know, that really know, and they can really feel it. And and they'll they'll take they'll take the hit. They'll take, you know, they'll take a bad morning because boy, they had a great night with that burrito. So <laughs> wow. So <laughs> so. There you go, Phil. All right. <laughs> there. That's great. Uh, well, you know what? It's been a real pleasure having you on. This has been great. I think we, we've learned a lot. We've 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 opened our eyes to a few things, and I think our listeners will will find it in the same. And and Phil, you know, if someone's interested um, in learning more, maybe a little bit about Stillwater techniques, mm-hmm. do you have a website address that you could share yep. with us that you um, could pass on? I've got my own personal website address, flycraftangling.com. It will eventually, when I get my website redone, be changed to philrolleyflyfishing.com. Um, okay. um, but that's how you can find me on social media as well, Instagram and Facebook. Um, on my website, you can sign up for my, I do a newsletter um, mm-hmm. that I send out periodically. I've got my YouTube channel, like you mentioned. And I just released my fourth book, The Orvis Guide to Stillwater Fly Fishing. So that would be if somebody wants to pick that up. It's 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 a two pounds of book. It's a burrito of books. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, 110,000 words. So, uh, yeah, I threw everything I could think of in it and more. Wow. Um, yeah, so that just got recently released. So you can get that through. Um, we also have our own, myself and Brian Chan, our own online Stillwater Fly Fishing store called The Stillwater Fly Fishing Store. Um, that caters to the stillwater fly fisher. Our flies, books, DVDs, digital downloads, leaders, indicators, everything specifically aimed at that that crazy nichiness that us stillwater anglers are. Right? That's just, great. Yeah. So great. yeah. And awesome. of course, email too, flycraft at shaw.ca. Drop me an email. Happy to happy to talk uh, stillwater fishing and fly fishing anytime. So that's great. Yeah. That's great. And we got one quick thing to add. Sure. I, I did have this in a conversation with Taylor last night because we were looking at your online store yeah. and it had the balanced leeches on there mm-hmm. and I saw the and well anyway we saw the bruised one yep. it was it was a big it was a big fan moment we're like oh my yep. god there it is <laughs> like you know we could literally procure some of these flies from Phil Rowley's fly yep. shop and then what was it you're gonna put them like in a glass case like when the whole day is going bad and we have have them in a little we'll break glass in case case of emergency yeah with a little yeah. tiny Little tiny yeah, hammer and the things that just like gold. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and just oh, I gotta rub it in, Phil. <laughs> yeah. We were picturing Pyramid Lake, and then everything's going wrong. We'll even go as far as bringing uh, like a, like a red grass rollout carpet yeah. to where we roll that down to our ladder, and as we approach the ladder, we'll break it. But like that that lure <laughs> will never contact sand or anything. It's just like it gets the whole gets the whole red carpet treatment. Yeah. And, and and talk about clearing some beach space. Yeah. You know, real quick, people are like, what the hell are these guys doing? It's like, you don't understand. You know, we're breaking out the big guns here. But we thought we'd share that with you. Cause, but yeah, but you no, you're, you're, you make one cast and you break it off. No, <laughs> no, no. That's, that's our own fault because we yeah. didn't buy your lead too, right? Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well, th- thank you again, Phil, for joining us. And then if you're listening to this, uh, check out his website, check out his store. Phil's got 
tons of great information, tons of great videos. Uh, you can find them all over the place out there. So, and, and yeah, he's, just Google he's, my name is probably the best way. Yeah. That's the easiest way to do oh, it. Yeah. So, yeah. And, awesome. and Phil, I just have to say, um, I never thought I would be speaking to you know somebody I look at as a as a legend. You know, like oh, thanks, dude. I mean, I'm, I'm not a sugarcoating it here. I mean, yeah. now you've been a big influence, here, Taylor. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you've <laughs> you've taught me a lot when it comes to lakes and everything, and I've never thought I'd get to meet the guy. You know, so. I do appreciate getting to talk to you. Well, hopefully we can get on the water someday. Yes, I would absolutely love that. It would be Burrito, an honor. Burritos for lunch and breakfast and dinner. Yeah, absolutely. And dinner. That's, <laughs> that's all we're eating. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's awesome. All right, Phil, thanks again for joining us. And uh, once again, thanks for joining us on Burritos, Breaks, and Flies. And until next time, tight lines. Sometimes I feel a little mad But don't you know that knowing a life can always be nature When things go wrong I seem to be bad joy that's hard to hide and sometimes it seems that all I have to do is worry and then you're bound to see my other side I'm just a soul whose intentions are good oh Lord please don't let me be misunderstood if I seem edgy I want you to know that I never meet the And that's one thing I never mean to do Cause I love you, oh, 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 baby Don't you know I'm human I have thoughts like any other one Sometimes I find myself alone regretting Some foolish thing, some little sinful thing I've done I'm just a soul whose intentions are good Oh, Lord, please don't let me be misunderstood Yes, I'm just a soul whose intentions are good Oh, Lord, please don't let me be misunderstood